Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Thanks for joining us once again in the StoryCraft Cafe. We are getting near the end of our rewrite challenge, and this week our panel discusses the state of publishing in 2023, what it looks like now, what it has looked like in the recent past, and we try to divine, you know, what... uh, what it's going to look like in the next few years by comparing what it's looked like in the past few of pretty lively debate. And we're actually going to continue this discussion this Thursday at 11 a.m. Central Time, 12 Eastern. Figure out your time zones from there. We're going to jump right in. Thanks to Dabble for sponsoring this episode as always. Now on to our show. Welcome into the StoryCraft Cafe. I am your host, Hank Garner. Joining me today, as always, Josh Hayes, Rick Partlow, Steve Bowyer, slash Jamie Castle. We are here to talk about writing and rewriting. And uh, today I thought it would be fun to explore what publishing looks like in 2023. You know, the the publishing landscape has changed greatly over the last hundred years uh most definitely in the last 10 years have we seen just exponential changes and exponential is probably not the right word but um a complete uh shift in the way the publishing industry works and the way that you can get your stories out to readers uh the whole landscape has changed. And today I thought it'd be fun to kind of explore some of those and what it looks like in 2023, what publishing your book has uh, has looked like over the last decade and maybe some thoughts about where we're headed. Um, welcome, guys. Well, hey, hey. Hi. Thanks. Thanks for having us, Hank. <laughs> when you told us we were going to be doing this, I prepared a PowerPoint presentation. Um, I didn't realize that we couldn't do that through here. So I'll just describe most of it for you. It's okay. um, Well, it's a dumpster. What color is it? (laughs) That's what the publishing industry looks like. It's just a big dumpster and then flames shooting out of the top. To to quote, to quote, uh, 1984, the publishing industry is a giant boot stomping on your face over and over. (laughs) I mean, I can make that part of my PowerPoint presentation. I was kind of hoping for some some uplifting. Here's the uplifting talk. This and guy I remembered I invited books. Steve, who I, I do. Me, that's uplifting. You, you know, Steve. Um, what I find interesting is that you have empowered uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of people to take their stories and get them out to the world, and have you know have you have so many success stories that you can personally attest to yet you uh also are one of the most critical people and i mean that in a loving way of the <laughs> publishing industry so so please, i make a huge uh, justify yourself i make a huge distinction between and this is going to sound arrogant i don't care i can sound arrogant um i make a huge distinction between what athon does and then the publishing industry at large um, the reason that Athon Books exists is because of the state of the publishing industry. Um, we have taken authors that, by all senses of the word, should not have a voice in science fiction and fantasy and given them the opportunity to make millions of dollars. Um, I was looking at our, our author list the other day, and we have several authors who have made over a million dollars in the last two years. Um, That wouldn't exist. That doesn't exist in the publishing industry at large. Um, 
so when I, when I am critical of the publishing industry, first of all, I do love the publishing industry. I have a lot of friends in the trad pub world. Um, I have some books published by trad pub, but the reality is when I look at our contract versus a trad pub contract, it is not even the same ball game that you're playing. Um, there it's very, everything's very, very predatory. In <coughs> everything from when you look at ads on Facebook for how to write your next big novel, how to become an author and, uh, you know, build your author career in a year. Uh, these things that are just like predatory concepts that are not, you can't just replicate something down the line or else we would do it every time. Rick Partlow is a phenomenal example of an author who could have a tremendously massive series and then a bunch of ones that did well. Uh, if we could replicate everything in perfection, we would have everything Rick, uh, Rick puts out look like Drop Trooper. Um, instead, instead the rest do. is all crap. No, it's definitely <laughs> <laughs> the sad part is that you have written 54 phenomenal books. I can't look at one that I've read, and I've read quite a few of your books, by the way, um, and tell you that any of them are worse than Drop Trooper. So what is it? What is it that does it? There's so many factors that go into it, but what Trad Pub tends to do is instead of giving higher percentage royalties, you get much, much lower percentage royalties. And then the only way something becomes really big is if it's pay to play. And we thank you, Jesus. We saw Barnes and Noble stand up against this recently. And we also saw Barnes and Noble go from shutting down a hundred stores to now reopening 30 of them because they brought in a new guy who refused to pay to play. It used to be that the publishers could spend millions of dollars to guarantee that every Barnes and Noble would buy a certain number of a particular book and give it a certain spot on every single shelf. And when they looked at what was happening, a handful of books were selling and the rest were just sitting on the shelves. Now he refuses to take money for placement. He allows each individual bookstore staff to determine what books go on the shelves. And they have a 97% sales rate for every book that goes onto their shelves. That's wild. It's insane. That but is, it's, it's indicative of what the publishing market has looked like. We like this author. We like this book. Here's $10 million. Make it the best seller you have. Meanwhile, it, it doesn't mean we like it. Just look at Spotify. How many garbage songs get shoved down our throat on playlists? And it looks like people like it when really all they're doing is hitting play and it's playing that song because we're forced to, to listen to it. We're told go buy something about crawdads, whether it's a good book or not. We're told to go buy this book because so many people are telling us to buy it that we go, well, if I don't read it, I don't know what I'm not a part of the reader world. Something about it. crawdads, like the sequel to something about Mary. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. There was, you know, that crawdad book might have been fantastic, but it sold enough because it was forced to sell enough that it became a movie, which then sold more. And I hate that I'm using a specific example, but that's just the book that popped into my head. McConaughey is number one again on Audible. What is that? He's not that popular. Who? Matthew McConaughey's book. Oh, yeah. It's been for like two years <laughs> off and on. And it's like six hours long. Yeah, and it's it's not that great a book. Um, you know, when you get past <laughs> Matthew McConaughey's shtick, it you know, all right, all right, all right. I got nothing against Matthew McConaughey, I don't but what either, that but... does is it tells me there's something happening yeah on the back end that's going by Matt McConaughey. Right. Buy this but... for two years. Like that's bonkers. Yeah. So the publishing industry is dumpster fire, but there are some tremendous ways to find your way into this industry, even if that means self-publication, um, where you can make more money doing that than you ever will doing trad. And you won't need to pay an agent 15%. You won't need to change your book to meet their narrative. You won't have to do all the crazy things that are required of you in the trad market just to get a book where in the trad market, the average book sells 12 copies. Well, and there's also the, the, I mean, everybody talks about going trad and getting your books on the shelves, but I know of several book deals with trad publishers where they don't get 
print books on shelves that just they don't get distribution. I, I can't believe I'm going to do this, but I want to share numbers with you so that you have a, a I might get in trouble for this, but I'm going to do it anyway. OK, cold as hell sold thousands and thousands and thousands of print copies off of shelves in bookstores of those thousands, 5000 plus, I think 10 close to 10,000, maybe of those thousands. You know how many were from Barnes and Noble? 175. Oh, wow. All the rest of them. Indie bookstores. Really? What that's telling me is that the indie buyer has a better idea of what people are actually reading than, than big pub. And I know I just talked, talked a lot of good things about Barnes and Noble, but remember they are still very, very strictly traditional publishing. Yeah. Well, it sounds like Barnes Noble might be trying to correct some They're of that. They're turning it around, for sure. But that's a huge ship to course correct. One of our biggest sellers is a place called Fountain Books in Oregon. And they just fell in love with the book and sold it to everyone who walked in, right? Like, you got this book's fantastic. You got to read it. And it wasn't necessarily the placement. It was when somebody comes in and goes, do you have any suggestions for me? And the workers go, yeah, this was great. Read it. And then they continually came back and said, oh, we love that book. Do you have anything else like it? There's Uh, an interesting connection between the publishing industry and the music industry. And I I see a lot of parallels in in these two industries. And and you can speak to both, Steve, because uh, I think you um, had some dealings in the music industry where kind of around the same time that the the sea change was happening – and, uh, and I think you can speak to this also, but there used to be a time where you could have regional hits uh, on with music and something just really blew up in the Deep South or in, uh, you know, what the Rust Belt or, or something, something that really spoke to this group of people. And, and it might erupt into a national hit or it might not. But there were people who could make a good living on regional hits. And uh, and I kind of feel like some of that is like you were just talking about the bookstore in Oregon, where a certain group of people have really resonated with this thing. And it and it's kind of taken a life of its own there. Um, it's, it's had national success also. But I, I find it interesting that you have these pockets where yeah, Colorado is another one. We sell like crazy in Colorado because yeah. it's about fucking cowboys. Excuse yeah. me. Freaking account, freaking cowboys. Um, and so what you're talking about with the music industry has been destroyed by the syndicated radio station. Yeah. The homogenous nature of, you know, why, why me in South Mississippi might like the same thing as someone in Portland, uh, maybe, but probably not a lot of cross pollination there. I, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I won't talk forever, but that's yeah. that's the way that I see it. Is that that's every, not like you? Every, every radio station plays the same thing, regardless of weather, and a lot of it is money driven. A lot of it is we've got this new Miley Cyrus hit, we want it to be big, and they do pay the radio stations to play it. And, Payola. and what's that, Rick? Payola. Yeah, it, it's yeah. it's just a, it's it's really a. It's a sad time for artists in general because we have to contend with corporations. And I'm very pro-capitalist, but we all know that there's the evil side of capitalism, and that's what's prevailing here. But it's been this way for a while now. It's been this way since the late 90s. Yep. It's not been – it's not brand new. Um, Good. Yep. So, Rick – Drop Trooper uh, originally began as an indie pub. Um, no, no, no. no? no, no Drop Trooper was always Drop Trooper was always uh, an Athon book. Okay, I, my first Athon series with them was Wholesale Slaughter. Uh, the books that I have that used to be indie published but are now Athon are Birthright novels, Recon series, Acheron, Upcoming Cyborg. Yeah, they, they they all were indie published first and. A lot of them did really well, but um, there's just um, there is a lot of in-depth business knowledge that goes into making money off a series that already had its day, and I do not have that knowledge, which is why I 
well, let's Nathan, you know, can you guys do something yeah. with these? Let's rewind for just a minute, um, because okay. those books that you indie published, um, if I remember your story correctly, and, and correct me, but um, there there was a time where you um, tried to get traditionally published. You had yes. an agent, and just never was finding the traction that you wanted. And then you found an audience when you decided to indie pub, and you had more success than you anticipated, and then kind of had to had to rush to kind of learn the business side of it to um, take yeah, advantage it was, it was, of the uh, that you got. I was woefully unprepared for success. Yeah. Um, when I put out my first two books, the one that I had tried, the ones that I tried to um, get published tra- traditionally, I put them both out at 99 cents at the same time. Um, and they did, they sold like uh, between the two of them thirty thousand copies that first year, but it was ninety nine cents, you know. And I didn't right. have anything else out. I didn't have, I didn't know. Oh, when you put out your first book at ninety nine cents, you're supposed to have like three books already written that you can put out and make your money from people buying the other book. I didn't know any of that. There, I was just two thousand eleven. I didn't know yeah. where to look, so um, I did not get another book out for. Um, a year after after that, and then it took a year for the next book, and on so on and so forth, until finally, five years later, I started writing faster and outlining and getting more books out. And it was at that point, like the end of 2016, the beginning of 2017, that I started having like real financial success at it because finally I had like seven books, and uh, it, you know, I had the uh, like a package trilogy that's right. pretty long that people, I, I put glory boy out and then people would go from that and to read the birthright rebirth, right books. And uh, it did, it did pretty good. But again, it, it took a lot of marketing know-how to capitalize on that. And though I was writing faster and doing better with other things like covers, I still knew nothing about marketing and, any money I threw at it was basically just setting it on fire. (laughs) Well, you know, that was, uh, you said you kind of stumbled into um, the way to launch a book at the time, you know, put a book up for 99 cents, have a back catalog you could steer readers toward and kind of get those funnels working uh, for you. Does that still hold true today? Is that how you, um, you know, that, that was very much, uh, I've heard it's changing. Yeah. I, I think it, I think it has, but, um, what do you guys think about if you've got a, a book that you're launching today? Um, what's the big splash that you use? It used to be, it was released at a 99 cents, have funnels to direct people to buy other product. Does that still work? Everything comes down to genre. Um, as a matter of fact, I have a call right after this, I have a call with Amazon to discuss all the AI stuff going on and sort yeah. of, give them, you know, whatever. But one of the things I'm going to bring up in that meeting and I have as a sort of agenda point is discussing with them whether or not there is an algorithmic um, stifling of the 99 cents book. Uh, because over the past several months, now there's a lot, right? So if you, if you want to get deep, we can get deep, but I won't get like uber deep. There was a change in everything about four months ago where you were able to be in 10 categories and then they changed it so that you could only be in, you could only rank in three categories. Problem is, I really don't believe that was a purposeful decision by Amazon. I think that there's an error in their system that they've yet to rectify and they just owned that error by telling us, oh no, that's how it works now. Because we can see um, there's a there's a, an application called Publisher Rocket that Dave Chesson makes and you can look at all of the the numbers and you can see where may was literally the top 30 made 16 grand and then boom next month top 30 made three grand it was it was this huge huge drop that consistently came until we are here right now and so i think there was an error between the front end and the back end in amazon and they just owned the lie um they can't figure out what the problem is i don't believe it was on purpose because it's costing them money hands over fist um, but in conjunction with that, we also saw this, this steep decline in 
science fiction sales. Unfortunately, what happened there was we can also look at, okay, Jay and Chaney's putting out more books and Jay and Chaney owns the market. He's, you know, uh, there's just no argument there. Jeff's a good friend of mine, but at the same time, like the number of books that he's putting out cannibalizes what everybody else can do. And of course, we're lucky that we got Rick, we got Jeff Haskell, we've got several others who still make it in. But launching a new science fiction series is difficult. And so part of it is, okay, are they stifling the 99 cents? If they are, the problem is the readers don't know that. So to launch at $4.99 to meet the Amazon demand doesn't mean that the readers are going to go, I'm going to pay $4.99 for this. If the readers are still, I want 99 cent books, but Amazon's not algorithmically pushing those 99 cents, we're at a standstill with what we could do. So Rhett and my job, like Rick was talking about, he didn't have necessarily that business mind. Rhett and my job is to do this all day long. All we do is look at numbers and data and bullcrap to try to figure out what is that next push that we need to make in order to get these books selling the way that we know they can and should. Um, and sometimes that takes time and it's really unfortunate because you have books scheduled for a specific period of time and everything's leaning up, leaving up, leading up to that. And sometimes there's nothing you can do to change that release date. Amazon still owns release dates to a degree. So then we have to go, okay, what do we do? We throw more money at it because that's the only re the only real recourse we have is to throw more money. When you're an indie published author, you don't always have more money to throw at something. Your budget might have been $250 and that's it, period. That's all of my marketing money. You can't go, well, I guess I'm going to put 5000 into it. So um, the 99 cent thing is still a tactic that we use because we don't yet know what other tactic to use. And the readers are still wanting that 99 cents. Now, that's not true in Lit RPG. Lit RPG, you, you publish at full price. Romance probably is still a 99 cent book one market. Thrillers is a full price market. Fantasy is a full price market. Um, it all depends on the genre that you're writing and what the reader expectation is. And you have to know that stuff. And the only way to know that is to really do your homework on what sells and why it sells. If people looked at Jay and Cheney and tried to copy Jay and Cheney, they would quickly realize that the reason he sells is because the algorithm loves him because he puts out a book every two weeks with his name on it. And, you know, whether it's co-written or whatever, it's, it's, it's still got that algorithm going. Um, Rick, the reason Rick sells, he writes fast and he writes good books and we can continually keep the market moving along without flooding it with Rick. We can still keep people getting their Rick Partlow fix and the algorithm goes, I love Rick. I need to buy the algorithm some flowers. <laughs> right? <laughs> but again, remember, Rick writes good books. Cheney writes good books. This isn't what it was in 2014 lowest viable product. This isn't right the, right. the most number of books you can write. Don't get it edited. Put what this isn't that you yeah. still have to write good books. And we just got really blessed with the fact that Rick can do that quickly. We'll see what happens with this chat GPT stuff, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's going to be interesting to see what the future uh, looks like and, and how it's going to be interesting to me to see how, um, the consumer responds to that. I think that's mm -hmm. um, anyway, that that's another conversation that we are going to have soon. Um, the, I, I find it interesting how different um, genres uh, perform, uh, but also how the authors work in that space. For instance, we're talking about science fiction. Um like you said, um, very good books, rapidly written and released is better. Um, I was talking with Taylor Adams yesterday, who's a psychological suspense author, and he's uh, a trad pub guy, and he puts out one book a year, and they are all standalones. And I asked him, I said, Taylor, is there ever a um, uh, a temptation to take one of these characters that you've written and series eyes you know write another story that you know another adventure this character goes on and and he looked at me like 
Well, no, I've, I've never thought of that. I've never been tempted to do that. And mostly because I kill off everybody. In <laughs> <book>. <laughs> you know, but it, it's like one book a year, um, all standalones. And, you know, I'm, I'm I have no idea what is uh, he his sales numbers, from what I understand, are are pretty good. Uh, he's a full time writer which is becoming more and more rare in trad pub circles um well it's i mean it's i I find it interesting how different these two genres are it's i think it's rare in in every aspect of publishing being a full-time author is is hard whether you're doing it indie or trad it's always been rare and i think that if you know, a lot of people like indie because they're like, oh, that's my that's my way into being a full time author. Um, and it's it's not a lot of the times um, for well, various what a lot reasons. Of find is that it's work. It it's a lot of work, and it's yeah. a lot of work that doesn't have anything to do with writing. Exactly. Um, and um, it's it's a lot of work, and it's it's extremely difficult to get right. And you know, you can you can take you know, $500 and throw it at a problem or you can take $5,000 and throw it at a problem. It might not, it might not work. It, you might not sell books. And that's, that's the reality of, of any publishing, whether it's traditional or indie is it doesn't matter sometimes how good the book is or how much money you throw at it. Sometimes they just don't, sometimes they just don't sell and that's reality. And I think a lot of people have the misconception of I can self-publish a book throw a whole bunch of money at it and uh, eventually uh, uh, it'll, it'll make me a million dollars. And it's just not the case. Um, you've got to, you've got to be a good author. First of all, you've got to be a good writer and you've got to write a great story. And I think a lot of people take advantage of the indie uh, space where publishing fast and, and somewhat mediocre books will make you some money. Um, but you have to look at quality over quantity there and go, are you releasing a hundred books in a year to make $50,000? Or are you releasing six books a year to make $50,000? Like you really kind of have to look at that and go, what's the staying power of that? And is it sustainable for you as an author? Rick writes ridiculously fast. um, But I know that there is going to come a point and he might already be there where, you know, uh, he gets to a point where I, man, I want to slow down and not do eight books a year, not do 10 books a year, because eventually I'm not saying you're going to run out of stories, but eventually the steam and at which you're pun- punching those words is really going to run out. Um, especially if you're doing it that consistent pace, but no, no, uh, I've been doing it for, uh, since, 19, since 2017. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not saying you will, but I'm saying that they're, for the majority of people working seven days a week for years and years and years is just not sustainable, especially when you're not seeing, but it's not work. Yeah. It's it's fun. Yeah. And that's that's an argument I make a lot is, you know, people ask me how I like, I have, I have two days a day, right? There's this, actually there's this stupid video that goes around. That's like, I have 12 days in a, in a work week or whatever. He's like, I get up at seven and I work till noon. That's a day. And then I work from one into eight and that's a day. And I'm doing double what you're doing. And it's like the stupidest video I've ever seen. <laughs> but for me, there's actually a part of it. That's, that's true. I work from, from seven thirty to about noon. And, and that feels like one day I do specific things during that time. And then I have lunch and I come back and then I have what I feel like is a completely separate day. But at no point do I feel like I'm working. Like this is the stuff I would do for fun. Right. Yeah. And that's not always going to be true for everyone, but it is, it's, it, it's definitely something to say when you can love what you do for work. Rick, how long have you been writing full time? Could, could support yourself on your writing? Um, well, I've only taken the leap to, making my income, the main income for our family from writing for three years now, but uh, pretty much I, I was making a full-time income since 2017. So like six, five and a half years ish. What was the, uh, 
what when when you got to that point where you could sustain yourself from your writing um and and you decided to to go full time with that what was that decision like um you know did what was it something you wrestled with for a while and yeah like i said i i i was right i was making enough money for like two and a half years to make that decision but um really i only had to i only they only had to make it when we decided to move out of florida because my wife is a pharmacist and in florida she had a you know a stable well-paying job and we moved to wyoming and here she does not she she can only work you know part-time some some days i mean and it's it was a lot of pressure it was a big decision to move away from that stable job with health care and uh, I mean, health insurance and and all that stuff to something that's potentially totally unstable yeah. well, rick had a really rick had a cool advantage which didn't seem like an advantage to him i'm sure but he experienced what it's like to have a book that sold really well in in glory boy right mm-hmm. And then experience what happens when you don't really follow the model. So it's very easy, I think, for authors sometimes to go, I made $40,000 this month. I can do this forever. And then four months later, they're making $1,200. Six months later, they're making $600. And now they've quit their job. They've quit their career. I have so many offers who come to me asking about going full time. And I say, please don't do it. And I have so many authors that did it anyway. And oftentimes those are our most difficult authors because they tend to look at us as the way that they stay full time when that is not our goal for them at all. I I shouldn't say that. I mean, yes, the goal is to help authors go full time, but at the same time, we don't expect that most authors should ever go full time. It's a fickle business. In, In reality, since writing as a career became a thing, the vast majority of authors have not been full-time authors. Uh, if you look at it, a lot of them were academics, you know, college professors, school teachers, librarians, whatever, you know, people, people who had a stable job already. And uh, they, they wrote as, and, and only a very few of them were successful enough that they were able to go to that full-time. I actually found it, uh, um, counterproductive is the wrong word, but I had, uh, so I went full time in 2019, uh, when I replaced my cop salary with my book salary. And, um, then I had a couple, I had the, the fall off. I had a couple of years that I didn't sell very many books at all. And, um, was very stressed about that and had uh, a lot of bouts with depression about that. And, um, this is, I have a very unique view of writing in this space because like Steve said, most authors are not full-time. I, I personally believe that you write better books if you're relying on something else to make your income. Um, because, and this is not true for everyone. It's true for me. When I'm looking at trying to get a book out as fast as possible, I may not take as much time and care with that story Um, because all I'm worried about is getting it published so I can have another payday. Whereas I work now, I have a job. uh, I, I, it's a part-time job technically, but I don't have to rely on my book money to make a living. And so I can take the time to make that book, the best book that I can make it. Um, and I think that should be the goal of, all writers. I think your goal should not be to be a full-time author. Your goal is to write the best, absolute best story that you can write. Rick, how many hours do you write a day? It's hard to say because I don't do what some people do where they sit down at the computer and they write for two hours and then they go do something else and they come back. I, I write, you know, a hundred, 500 words then I go do something else and I come back and write 300 words. So I'm basically I'm, I am writing from, wow, the wind's picking up outside. I'm writing from, uh, by the time I wake up until like 
midnight or one in the morning, but I'm not doing it the whole time. I'm just like writing some and doing something else. Well, the reason I bring it up is I, I it just happened last night. I was looking at um, just our authors in general and trying to see where sort of the best sellers are and, and what the gaps between all of them are. And I landed on myself, which I very, very rarely do. I don't usually Sounds look painful. at myself. Yeah. Landed on myself. I don't usually look at my sales numbers, but for those who are, this is an informative discussion. I want to just make this transparent for everybody. I have, as Jamie Castle, I have sold hundreds of thousands of books. I could not be a full-time author. Hmm. Financially couldn't do it. Uh, mentally couldn't do it. Right. Because to keep up the pace to do that over the, Rick sells what I've sold in, in five or six years. Rick can sell in a year, right? And so for me to be able to maintain that, I would be writing constantly. I would be um, fighting to, to, to pay bills because those hundreds of thousands of books, you've got to remember some of them were 99 cents. Some of them were box sets at 99 cents. And of right. course, then there's... KU reads and all of that. But like, I was also looking at like, I put out a book maybe every three months versus one a month. Was that and lightning so, rig? Yeah. Here, I'll show you guys what's going on. Outside. <laughs> I just saw your whole office look, just look, light look, up. Wow. <laughs> Good grief. That's look at that's the wind blowing out there. Right there. <laughs> wow. anyway, that was just for, just for transparency's sake, selling hundreds of thousands of yeah. books does not equate to actually being able to afford to live full time as an author. Well, that that brings me to another question that that uh, that I thought: What is the the typical life cycle um, of a book? Because I think a lot of people look at you know uh, really successful, famous authors and you, like John Grisham, for example, and you think that he puts out a a legal thriller once a year, some years twice a year but mostly once a year um and i'm i'm sure each one of those books does fairly well but i just wonder how many copies of the firm or a time to kill um are still kind of filling in uh you know his his income each year so a typical well, I, I don't book. know john grisham but i do know from talking to uh, other trad published very successful writers i know yeah um Usually there's one or two series that make most of their money and they write new stuff. And right. as it comes out, it starts to, it starts to make money, but basically they have one series, maybe two where they keep writing books in. And as the new book comes out, it makes mm -hmm. a bunch of money and that series still sells and everything else is kind of lower level. I mean, it's, Kind of, I guess it's kind of the same for me with, with the Drop Trooper books. You know, that's the one that still sells. Everything else sells some and then falls off and sells some and falls off. And that's that's the way it is for the people I know in trad publishing too. Yeah, you got to look at you got to look at the the reasons behind everything, which again is things that what that's what Rhett and I do with Athon is we go okay. So John Grisham sells. Why does John Grisham sell? He sells because he's a household name and there's been movies that have been made after his books. Right. Um, when somebody goes crime thriller, you go, or courtroom, you know, whatever you go, John yeah. Grisham, that, that's literally the name that comes to mind. Um, kids fantasy. Th there's a name that comes to mind immediately, right? JK. Uh, oh, I was going to say RL Stein, but that's horror. Well, sure. I mean, horror, right. But what I'm saying is that if I name a genre, probably all four of us are going to go for that same name because yep. we're so familiar with it. Now, if you take that down to sort of the indie world, um, if you put out a best-selling title today, and I'm talking best-selling, I don't know, top 100 in Amazon, and did not put out a sequel for a year, you would stop earning on that book in about six to eight months. That's a bestseller, right? But the typical book has about a three-week life cycle before you need a sequel to continue that thing going. Um, how does I that, that would shock a lot of a lot of people writing a book? I think I think that would shock them. Yeah, this isn't. I wrote a book and it's going to make me money forever. This is. I wrote a book and now I have to write my next book. 
And it's a really garbage place that we are in the industry, but um, there's not a whole lot of household names coming out anymore. Even in the trad pub world, you don't, you don't hear about these new authors quite like you did in the eighties and the nineties and even the early two thousands because the indie scene took over. Yeah. When, when Harry Potter was coming out, you know, (laughs) on the network news, uh, you know, these book launch events where people were, you know, stacked up outside the, the yeah. Um, I remember, um, I don't know, was when book seven came out or, or whatever, um, that we ordered from Amazon because we would, we were going to get the book a day early. I think it was, or something like that, you know, and, and all the kids, you know, looking out the, the, the kitchen windows, you know, for the UPS driver, you know, like it was, it was an event. Um, Are there book series authors uh, like that anymore? I I think they're all sure to learn for sure. (sighs) Yeah. Defiance of the Fall, for sure. J.M. Clark, for sure. We've got several of them that as soon as that book goes on pre-order, it's a bestseller and it stays that way for six months until the book comes out. Wow. Right? But those are, again, we're talking about Lit RPG, which is a new market where people are still very, very excited about the big projects in there. That's how sci-fi was 10 years ago. In two or three years, Lit RPG will be a different market. It'll just be a different market. And we'll probably see the lean toward the 99 cent book one. Um, and so much of that just has to do with the flooding of the market. And I was going to say that that it, it's kind of remember, when you mentioned having events and, and waiting for the next book come out. I, it, the, it's it's like the... Uh, the, the streaming wars that that happened and and now that there's there's so many streaming services now right that are making tv shows um that people can just binge and watch you know just at the click of a button and there's so many of them that you don't you know it was like back in the day when uh I don't know, like Castle, when Castle first came out, it was on network TV, there weren't any streaming services and everybody watched Castle or whatever it was, Star Trek or or whatever show that came out, like say in the 90s, everybody talked about those shows because there was only a few networks, TNT, USA, that kind of thing. And, and there wasn't very many options. So everybody talked about those. The same thing with books. Before indie digital publishing became a thing, you had to wait for the book to come out and you'd have a book a year or so between books and you, you just had to wait to go get it. And then that was the only thing to read because there wasn't anything else. I mean, there was right, but not on the same scale. And now there's thousands of books being published every day. Like every minute, a hundred books go on sale for Amazon. I'm sure that's even just an underestimated number severely. Right. But so it's, it's not a, the event the 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 time from when you could publish a book and become just this massive success first of all it never really existed but now it it's it does not happen anymore just because of the the, the well you know what what steve was saying about um about um authors that are must buy you know that people look for them um it's the same with um movies now if you there is a recent survey done of moviegoers what actors will you go see a movie because they're in it and almost every single one of them is in their 50s the only one that was under 40 was chris hemsworth and he's about to turn 40 and people don't go to movies for the new generation of of actors anymore there's no movie stars just like there's no book right there's no writers who are star authors that people go to buy their books coming up they're they're all they're all they're all older they're all people who establish themselves you know 20 years has social media played into that 100 we are so overloaded with entertainment that we don't need to be entertained i mean look at look at like chris pratt right chris pratt is arguably one of the the biggest movie stars right now um but he can't uh, make as, a successful movie that's not, not right, Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> right, Guardians of the Galaxy or the the, the Jurassic the, World uh, franchise movies is yeah. is what he's in. Um, even uh, the Terminalist, 
Nobody watched the Terminalist because Chris Pratt was in it. They watched the Terminalist uh, because of the the novel series and how how. I'm going to argue further than that. They didn't watch it because of the novel series. They watched it because everywhere they went, somebody was telling them they had to watch it with an ad. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. You opened up Amazon Prime and it was like, you better watch the Terminalist or we'll cancel your account. Like it was. You're watching the Terminalist or he's going to come hunt you down and kill you. Right. (laughs) And the crazy thing about the the Terminalist waiting with a hatchet somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. The crazy thing about those books is uh, I don't have anything against Jack Carr as a as a person or an author but i me personally i don't think his books are that great um but you look at like what made that book successful let me send jack an email real yeah quick. send jack an email. <laughs> um i i read the first book thought it was okay the second book uh was not great because half of the book didn't matter and then i stopped reading the third book just because it was wet but anyway Jack Carr had a whole social thing around him as a Navy SEAL, which helped him sell that book. I mean, Jack Carr had all this, the people in the military complex that are readers that were going to read the book. He was in with Joe Rogan. He had all these other things. But so Jack he, Carr was never in the military. Well, Jack Carr is a pseudonym. The author was, <laughs> right. Well, no, there was um, two authors. One well, of them was uh, Navy SEAL. One was a, right. was a co-writer. But Jack Carr was never in either. Yeah. <laughs> but he had a he had a platform that I'm sold only his book. And well, it, he, he also built a platform uh, because when – fun fact, um, I gave him his, his very first interview – um, when the terminal list first came out, I was the first podcast he was ever on. Nice. Um, and he then afterwards sent me uh, a package in the mail with a hardcover of the terminal list with a long handwritten uh, note in the front of it. And then in his second book, he thanked me in mm-hmm. the, uh, a whole bunch of other people. Don't, don't get me wrong. Um, like he, this book is dedicated to Hank Garner only. Hank Garner, right? Yeah, a, a page all by itself. Um, but he cultivated this uh, kind of, you know, this, this network of uh, connections he was making. Yeah, and also he 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 would con- he would basically talk to via email or whatever anyone. Right. I have a friend who was. Uh, for the Department of Defense and has done work as a contractor. So he knows a lot of uh, special operations people. And Jack Carr, he, he, he uh, talked to Jack Carr via email for months until Jack Carr got big, you know, and then, right. then he kind of dropped off. But while he was pushing that first book, he would have long email conversations with basically anybody who was connected in any way to special operations publishing. Well, no, that's what I mean. Like he, he built his audience and then that it, it, it took on a life of its own after that. And that's, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily happen in trad pub. A lot of happens more in indie pub. I think that the building of your audience, um, he he definitely had an indie mindset in his marketing for sure. Um, Yeah. And our most successful authors are generally the ones that do some work. Yeah. Um, those who are able to reach their readers, those who are able to help with ads, right? Because we tell people all the time, we're running ads, but our ads are targeted to what we think they should be targeted to. You're probably going to end up targeting a totally different group of people. We're not asking you to spend hundreds of dollars, but we are asking if you're able, go ahead and throw five, 10 bucks at some ads and see where it takes some things. And a lot of times they go, oh, these ads are doing something. I'll add a little bit more money to it. And they start to cultivate their own group. Only about this last year did I start really building the Jamie Castle fan page. And, you know, I've got something like 900 people on there, which is a pretty moderate, like, like it's modest. But I've tried everything I can to connect with individual people who comment on my stuff. For sure. Because when they feel like you're friends with them, and listen, I'll message them. They'll message me. Like, like you're saying, if you can get relationships with your readers they'll buy everything that you put out. And it's not just about manipulating your readers into buying it. I genuinely love people, so I'll talk to anyone. But finding that way of connecting with people is vital to selling books. Um, if I could bring up one more, I think we're almost out of time. I don't know, but like Hugh Howie, 
is a really interesting example. They've got, we've got Silo coming out on Amazon prime, or maybe it's already out. It's it's on Apple. Apple, And it's already out. Is that right? Comes out on the the first or the second or something. We're really close to it. Take what Hugh Howie did 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago. Try that today. Yeah. Hugh Howie would be a failure. I love you, Hugh, wherever you are and whatever. He's a product of his time. For but sure. Like, not novellas didn't work. These short stories, these like weird, like just the weird way that he did that was so indicative of the period of time by at which he launched. And we can look at so many authors over the course of the last 15 years and go, okay, here is why they had success. There's still ones where we go, I have no idea. But but you can really pinpoint the the the, the fathers of genres, the mothers of genres. And go, oh, they did it. They, they're so big because they were one of the first to do it, or they were so big because they did this. Or, or- well, as funny as it sounds, uh, I managed to build an audience back in 2011 by talking to people about my military science fiction on uh, a couple of firearms message forums. <laughs> That's why Larry Korea is so big. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Scott and, and I. I and that's and that's why I say I, I I didn't do it right, but I did get a bunch of people who had read my books. So when I started putting out more books, they were ready to read them. And you couldn't you can't do it that way anymore because back in 2011, somebody saying, "Hey, I wrote a book. Do you want to read it?" was a novelty, and nobody cares. Like, oh, that's cool. Now it's like, oh, stop talking about your damn book. You know, for sure. we're going to kick you off this message form. Well, we also <laughs> live in the only industry where it's considered to be bad form to self-promote yourself. Right. Imagine if you invented a pillow. I don't know, right? Huh. Imagine if you – Imagine – Imagine if you bought my pillow, your pillow, your (laughs) pillow.com, but you weren't allowed to tell anyone about your pillow without people going, you are just a rotten self promoter, blah, blah, blah. Business wouldn't exist, but we have been shoved into this place where it's wrong to encourage people to read your book. Well, and I think that that it's, that's, that's ludicrous. We're talking, the, the whole point of this show was to talk about what to do with your book and, I, I don't know that we touched a whole lot of, of that. We've got, we got we did some really deep background on a lot of stuff. I would say personally, um, like ask yourself what you're trying to do with the book. Like, because you can go trad pub route if that's the route you want to go. If you want to well, go the indie route can. that, that well, <laughs> you can, you're going to get rejections probably, yeah, you but you it. can, it's you can go that route. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not saying that if you go like through a hybrid publisher, you get accepted. I mean, Athon rejects books all the time. Um, you know, if you self pub, uh, like with everything, you have to meter your expectations a lot. Um, because especially like we were talking about the beginning of the show with all these predatory practices that are out there. I, I saw an Instagram ad where this dude was like, you can make $25,000 on your book or, or whatever. And I go and I look at his website and he has purchase plans where you can purchase a package and they'll do this, this, and this like the, the top package was like 25 grand. And it was like, we'll get you on a podcast and you'll have this and that. And I'm like, wow, a you, podcast. Can, <laughs> you can do that for free. Like you could do everything that they're talking about for free. Uh, if you just took a little bit of time and did it yourself. Um, but I think you really need to just understand what you're trying to do. If you're just trying to, to, to get your book into a few people's, uh, hands self-publish it and see how it does. Um, you know, if you've, I, I would say a, a lot of people come in there be like, I want to be an author. What do I do? And my, my legit answer is spend five or six years doing what you do and don't worry about selling books, just practice yeah. writing and, and write a good story. Because if you come into indie publishing or whatever it is, and your mindset is, I'm going to write a best-selling novel, and I want to, I want to be a full-time author. That's exactly the wrong mindset to have coming into being a creator. Because in the in the when it when it comes down to it, we're all storytellers. So when you have that book done and you've told the best story that you can tell, then look at your options. What kind of book is it? Is it a romance book? Is it a sci-fi book? There, if it's a like we've been talking about genre, if it's a like a a epic fantasy book 
those books can sell indie, but the bigger market is trad for that particular genre. You can sell them. I know a lot of people personally that sell epic fantasy in in indie indie space, but Mill Sci-Fi sells better in an indie space than epic fantasy, and uh, it sells better. Mill Sci-Fi sells better in the indie space than trad pub. Um, Lit RPG really doesn't sell in trad pub at all. I mean, there are some lit RPGs that are sold in trad pub, but that is a, a for right now anyway. That's a big indie thing. Uh, romance can go either way, really. Um, but it's you need to really take your time and and focus on a your craft and then b what you want to do with it. And then the resources are out there. The podcasts are out there. Uh, you know, you're spending a year of your life writing a book. Take some hours during that year and figure out what's going on in the space. Like what, what is the best practice? And a lot of that stuff is free. You don't have to pay for anything. And, and talk to the people that have done it. Don't talk to the people that are that are sort of promoting it. Right. I know some guys in the indie space who are predatory, taking advantage of authors, charging them three hundred dollars to get them onto some podcasts and to do this. Listen, Hank has been consistently one of the best and biggest independent author podcast interviewers, not just independent, but I'm speaking to the independent, right? And I've been on his show, what, Hank, a, a dozen times? A dozen times, probably. Um, and I, I think Hank's okay with me saying this, like sales that come from Hank's show are negligible. That's not a, that's nothing against Hank, but listeners generally are listening to a podcast to listen to a podcast, not to find the next thing that they're going to buy. Right. Yeah. Unless that sure. podcast name is Joe or Howard, it's not helping you sell books. Right. Yeah. So go on there for a different reason. Go on there to, I don't know, excitedly talk about your book and maybe gain a few readers out of it. Well, what, what happens when, when you hear uh, a guest on a podcast, you become familiar with that creator and, and, and that begins your relationship in your mind with that creator. Well, and a lot and, of times you know, if you're listening to a podcast for an author, it's not that you're trying to find an author. You're trying to find out more about the author that you already mm -hmm. enjoy. And so, you know, Hank, you've had several authors on. I scroll through and go, I know that author. I like that author. I want to hear about his process. Yeah, exactly. I want to hear more about him. And it's not technically a shopping network, even though I have listened to your yeah. show and gone, Oh, that like on a rotating deal. And I've found new authors through your show, but yeah, I, I mean, publicity one, is, well, go ahead. I was going to say the number one thing I've gained from being on shows with Hank and, and other podcasters is learning how to talk about my book. Mm -hmm. The well, elevator also, is hard. Go ahead, what Steve was saying, there are predatory people out there trying to pitch plans and stuff, but even the ones who aren't predatory, who are in this honestly and honestly want to help people, um, a lot of them weren't successful as fiction writers. You know, they've been successful as nonfiction writers and having coaching and <clears throat> having plans and helping people, but the, the actual books that they wrote to sell for fiction didn't sell that well and you have to you have to wonder you know is the advice they're giving even if it's given in good faith is it really going to work for me right i mean it, it maybe it'll make maybe it'll make my sales go from you know ten dollars a month to fifty dollars a month or a hundred dollars a month but is listening to them going to make me go from a hundred dollars a month to five thousand dollars a month probably not right yeah yeah. Um, it looks like we are at the end of our hour and Steve just had to step away for a, a conference call. I believe that he's uh, participating in that he told us about earlier. Um, I feel like we just scratched the surface today of, of publishing and maybe we uh, continue this uh, next week with and and I'll try to come up with some some more actionable um i think if we talk things. about like some of the specific difference like it, it's kind yeah. of like rudimentary kind of fundamentally uh level of of what you're doing but maybe the biggest differences between trad pub and indie and and that yeah. kind of breakdown of the the way where where everything is at might be helpful yeah. 
Yeah, I think it was a little naive to think that we were going to cover all of this today. Um, <laughs> hey, you guys know what? We just go on these tangents right. and you're just that's along right. for and the that's ride. That's why you tune in. You tune that's in right. for the tangents. That's right. Um, Josh, Rick, uh, Steve, who's already dipped out, thanks for joining me. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Absolutely. Thank see you. Ya. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk to authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool should not be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at DabbleWriter.com and start your free trial today. Thanks for listening.